One of the things we often talk about at Verge is the importance of friends. And uh, I don't know if you remember back to middle school and high school, uh, there were certain groups of friends that you could get into. There were certain groups of, groups of friends that you couldn't get into. Um, all of them, all of them would maybe redirect your life just a little bit. And we say it this way in Verge, uh, show me your friends and I will show you your future. Right? Show me your friends and I will show you your future. It's kind of highlighting the importance of, of relationships. We talk about the uh, essentiality of relationships in the Christian walk. And, and the way that we say it here at Bethel is community. Right? The importance of community. And we have been in this uh, little mini-series just over the next three uh, three weeks. Last week, we, we launched it on uh, core values at, at Bethel. And the core values here are worship, community, service, and mission. We touched on worship last Sunday. We are touching on community this Sunday out of the book of First Peter. And then next week, we're going to be finishing up with service and mission. But this morning, we are going to be looking at this idea of uh, your friends pushing your future, the essentialness of relationships, the importance of community. And what I want us to walk away from here this morning is that in order to grow here, we must, as a church, commit to community. Commit to community. And this is definitely easier said than done in the midst of uh, full calendars and uh, hurts that come in the midst of community. It can be hard to commit to something uh, that is not easy uh, and that can sometimes stab us in the back, right? And I think that it's, it's no secret our, our society struggles with community. It's no secret uh, that the, in fact, the individual, right, has come to dominate society. The, the capital I, right, the almighty uh, individual, and I was reminded of this just this week when I went to pick up an Instacart order. Now, uh, Instacart in our family is not uh, a normal thing. It's a little bit of like Christmas where my wife doesn't have to take Laurel and like shop. And I was, I was amazed. Bethany couldn't go, so I, I went and I pulled into the Aldi parking lot here on, on 6. And I'm, I'm looking around and there are these beautiful blue parking spots that I pulled right into. And Bethany had texted me this link, and I clicked the link, and I clicked, and I said, I'm here. You know, I put in kind of the car that I was uh, driving, and, and then I sat there, and I scrolled on my phone. I didn't have to go in. I didn't have to talk to anybody. This guy came out like five minutes later. I was doing the thing where I was like looking at my phone and looking at the door, looking at the phone, looking at the door, and missed him still. And so he's like knocking on my, my back, and I pop the trunk. He loads my stuff, and away I go, right? Never having to talk to a single person. It was amazing, right? It was amazing. And I think it highlights the fact like our, our, our society bends to the individual. Our society bends to the individual. It doesn't even stop there. You know, anymore, you could move to the middle of nowhere, find a remote job. You can go to college all online. You can get three meals a day Ubered to your door if you really wanted to be unhealthy and poor. <laughs> but, right, I, I think this, this hyper-individualization um, has perhaps, has perhaps been one of the reasons that the United States right now is 
growing one of the loneliest generations. Gen Z, uh, people born between somewhere around 1997 and, and 2012, Gen Z, this kind of next generation that's coming of age right now, reports higher feelings of loneliness than any other generation before them. Higher feelings of loneliness than any other generation. Maybe it's this hyper-individualization, but um, before we all blame Snapgram and Instachat, loneliness is, not, loneliness is not just a young man's game. Loneliness is not just a young man's game. In 2018, uh, this was even before COVID, uh, a report by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that 22% of adults in the United States, 22% of adults, over 60 million individuals said that they often or always felt lonely or socially isolated. 60 million people in the United States always or often feel lonely or socially isolated. Another report found that more than a third of adults over the age of 45 and 43% of adults over 60 feel lonely often. This is our cultural reality, right? All of us in this room are part of that statistic at some point or another, right? And it is not wrong. It is not wrong to feel lonely. It is not wrong to feel socially isolated. But what an incredible opportunity the community of the church has to reach a lonely culture. A lonely culture with, with a community that's centered on the love of God and the person of Jesus Christ. I think this is an incredible opportunity the church has, not just for this generation, one of the loneliest generations that's ever been produced, but for society as a whole. And this morning, I want to look at the idea of community in 1 Peter. So if you want to turn with me uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter in two different places in 1 Peter. But I want to see three things this morning. How does God speak to this, this sting of isolation, this sting of loneliness, and how does he solve it with a ready-made uh, 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 community that is the church? I want to look at three things out of 1 Peter. First, I want to look at how community is made. How community is made. I want to look at what community actually looks like in the church, and then why community is important. So how community is made, what community looks like, and why community is important. Because in order to grow here, in order to grow here as a disciple of Jesus Christ, right here at Bethel Holbrook Portage, and in order to reach a lonely generation, we must commit to community. So first, let's look at how community is made. We're going to be out of 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. This is the word of the Lord to you this morning. If you have it, I would encourage you to follow along in, in your copy of, of Scripture, or it's up on the screen here for us. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this. Peter is speaking to believers who are all over, uh, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What I want to see 
right now and right away about how community is made is that biblical, biblical community is made by God and it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. What we are hopping into in 1 Peter is, is Peter who's writing to a group of, of first century Christians. He's writing to a group of early Christians who were either uh, currently suffering or there were storm clouds on the horizon and, and they were about to suffer some significant persecution for their religious beliefs. The, the winds of, of cultural indifference to Christianity, you know, that fringe group that was just doing their thing, that indifference was changing and, and now it was no longer acceptable, it was no longer easy, it was no longer comfortable to follow Christ. It cost something. It cost something. And, and practically, for, for early Christians, it might have cost employment. Their boss might have found out that they were attending a house church, that they were following this, this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and, and their boss might not have wanted to put up with the social problems, and so you were fired. You were let go. It might have cost family relationships. Oh, you're no longer worshiping Caesar like the rest of us as a god? You're no longer worshiping all of this uh, pantheon that we serve? exclusion. It might have cost you significantly to follow Christ. And Peter wanted to remind lonely believers of their common identity, their, their common victories, and their common purpose and responsibility to one another. And, and this is kind of community 101, right? In order for any community to work, whether it's, it's the bowling team that you are on on Tuesday nights or it's the book club that you go to and forget to read the book, whatever it is, there's some common sense of identity. Um, when, when I lived in Ohio, I, I, coached, uh, I coached soccer, and we would send the boys to a CrossFit gym every now and then to, to get a workout in. And I remember going to this CrossFit gym often. I walked into this warehouse and I remember looking around at, is anybody in here in CrossFit? I don't want, CrossFit is, is incredible. They have such a sense of common identity. And I remember walking into this warehouse and I'm watching people like chucking weights around. I'm watching them like throw their bodies in crazy ways and then going so hard on the stationary bike. And I remember thinking like, who hurt these people? <laughs> like, what is happening right now in this warehouse? But what's, what is so cool about CrossFit, right, is the common, the common identity and the common purpose that they have. Everybody in that room felt like they were a part of something because they were all pursuing the same thing, right? They were pursuing the goal of, of physical health. And their common identity in that purpose encourage them to do some awesome and, and at times ridiculous things, right? And this, is what, this is what community works to do. And so what Peter is telling us here about our common identity, the overall common push that Peter gives to the individual Christian is that each and every person that is in Christ Jesus is wanted and chosen and special to God the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ. Right, let's, let's look. Let's look at the common identity that God has given us and, and where it comes from. You look here in, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. All of the language here in this section, it's grounded in the Old Testament, right? 
comes from the history of the nation of Israel, comes from their successes, it comes from their failures, it comes from what God purposed them to do in his great redemptive plan. It comes from the work that God laid out in Genesis that he was going to redeem all of creation, right? So what Peter is trying to do, to do here is, is reach early Christians who are, are lonely, isolated, suffering persecution. He's working to connect readers to this, this larger, this, this greater, this grander common identity, one that's been around for thousands of years that spans nations, that spans generations. And so what he's practically saying to the first century Christian, he's saying, you know, you know listen, hey, if you have lost your job because of following Jesus Christ, don't worry, you are part of a spiritually rich family, right? If you have lost your family because of following Jesus Christ and they have rejected you, take comfort, you are part of an old and royal family of God. He's reminding them of their common identity that's grounded on the person of Jesus Christ. And so church, whatever you are feeling today, whether lonely or isolated, let Peter here remind you of your identity this morning. Right? Whether you feel lonely or not, whether you've walked into this place and you feel wanted or not, if you are in Christ, here, is, here are a few things that are true of you. You are a chosen race. Right? You were picked by God on the playground to play on his team. You are a royal priesthood. You are sons and daughter of the Most High God. You have been given a job to share Christ to all the nations. You are a holy nation. Your loyalty rises above nationalities and you're called to live a life like Jesus. You are a people for God's special possession. You are chosen and kept and loved by God the Father. And you are a people who have received God's mercy. We all here are broken. And we have all found spiritual healing at the cross. And what we have here in the church, in this community, is God taking a bunch of broken, spiritually dead, and distant individuals and drawing them together around a shared identity, around the reception of the same mercy and around the call of the same purpose. And all of this common identity has come through God's own choosing and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? We have all been called, if we are in Christ, out of darkness into his marvelous light. Right? In other words, you have been brought from, from spiritual death into spiritual life because of the work of Jesus Christ. You've been given a common identity. No longer an individual. You are now part of a community. And this is the foundation that, that God builds his community on, right? That God has chosen you and that he has chosen you through the work of Jesus Christ. This is the foundation that he builds our community on. And so if this is our foundation, what does it actually look like, right? What does Christian community, what does biblical community here at Bethel Holbrook Portage look like? And communities look different because there are different expectations in each one, right? Uh, there's, there's common language that happens in, in a community. There's common behavior. Have you ever uh, tried to insert yourself into a friend group and all it is is just like inside jokes that you don't understand? That's a community that has common language and common behavior, right? And all communities 
have this. I think this happens with families um, all the time, especially, especially uh, when you are newly married. Uh, my in-laws are sitting in the audience right now, and I remember when Bethany and I were first dating and when Bethany and I were first married, I realized that we had different Sunday afternoon routines in my family and in uh, my wife's family. Uh, so when I was growing up, we always had the uh, traditional Sunday afternoon crockpot uh, roast beef, right? Potatoes, onions, and you just set it in the morning. We came back. That's always what we had. Always what we had. We had a pot roast sitting in the crockpot waiting for us to come back. Uh, and we would come home, and we'd sit at the table. We would eat our food. We'd talk about our day. And then we would go. We would, like, I don't even know. We would go into our rooms or whatever, and we'd just do our own thing. Uh, and this is what I thought all Sunday afternoons should look like. I was wrong. <laughs> not that this is wrong or right. One is wrong or right. I'm not saying anything like that. But I remember, uh, I remember going to uh, my now in-law's house after church on Sundays. And uh, Sundays can be a little draining. You're talking to a lot of people. You're up on stage, yada, yada, yada. Sometimes I just want to, like, be horizontal on Sunday afternoon. And we would go uh, to their house, and we would cook. Like, the meal would be, would be cooked. And we would be in the kitchen, and we would talk. We'd talk about the service, talk about Sunday morning. Um, and then we would move to the table, and we would sit down, and we would talk, and we'd eat, and we would talk. And then we'd stay at the table, and then um, we would go, and we would, they would make coffee. Coffee would be made, and while it was brewing, we'd sit at the table, and we'd talk, and we'd drink our coffee at the table, and we would talk. And then we would move to the living room after we were done at the table, and we would talk a little bit more. And I've been over here on my phone for like an hour, like playing a game or something, and it was so foreign to me, right? So foreign to me. Like, how do we have so much to talk about? How have we not run out of words by now? And this was such, it was such a reminder, it was such a reminder of, of the love that that family had for each other. And my family just like, I'm done with you. I'm going to go to my room. But, we, but it's, it's a reminder of the different, the different behaviors that communities have, right? The different behaviors that families have. What should, what should the behavior of this family look like? What should the common language of this biblical Christian community look like? What did Peter expect a biblical community to look like? And for this, I want to jump to Peter's words in chapter 4. So we're going to jump to chapter 4. We're going to come back to chapter 2. But 1 Peter 4, 7 and 9 lays out a little bit of the practicals of, okay, what are we actually supposed to do with one another? What are we supposed to do with one another? And what we're going to see in this section is that biblical community looks like self-sacrifice and service. Biblical community looks like self-sacrifice and service. And so let's read this, uh, these two verses here. 1 Peter 4, 7 and 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Peter goes on to talk about service as being an aspect of Christian community, but we're going to leave that for next week. Uh, Peter is explaining here to a group of, of hurting uh, believers in a Christian community what their behavior ought to look like. Uh, before we get into the details of this biblical community, I want to first look at the first little statement here, uh, which is the motivation for all of this. Peter says, hey, we should be doing this because there is a time crunch involved. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. 
What's, what's this mean? What's he talking about here? The end of all things is at, is at hand. Does this, does this mean that uh, the world is ending and, and we ought to love one another because the world is ending? Does this mean like, hey, Christians, you, your lives are probably short, so let's do this right now while we still have breath in our lungs? Or does it mean something else? Uh, I, I think that this statement, end of all things, it's, it's said in the larger context, if you move back a few verses, it's said in the larger context of God's final judgment on humanity against sin, and it's set against the context of persecution because of having a, a different morality than society. So I think that it's saying that, that even if, right, even if society sees the gospel of Jesus Christ as irrelevant, it doesn't matter whatever they're doing to you because at the end, Jesus is going to return and judge everyone and everything. And that judgment is the next step in God's redemptive plan because the resurrection of Jesus just happened, right? We have resurrection. The next thing in God's plan is Christ is coming back. So we better love one another while we can so that we all can persevere in the same faith and so that we can be a witness to a hurting and lonely culture. We've seen this, this motivation here. There's a time crunch for us to be the biblical community that God calls us to be. And so what's the, what's the nitty-gritty? What should we actually be doing? And Peter gives four characteristics here in these two verses. He says we ought to be praying, we ought to be loving, we ought to be showing hospitality, and we ought to be serving. And again, we're going to talk about serving next week. So first, let's look at this idea of praying. He says, uh, first, you ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. For the sake of your prayers. And remember, this comes right on the heels of, of Peter saying, hey, the end of all things is near. And I don't know if you were around in 2020, but the end of all things is near did not create sober-minded and, and clear-headedness, right? I, do you remember when Chicago went into lockdown, like when we heard Chicago went in, was going into lockdown? Uh, my wife and I, I think it was a Friday, we were sitting and she had gotten home from school. And we're like, hey, COVID thing is kind of weird. Should we be doing something about this? And then the news came that, okay, Chicago is going into lockdown for like two weeks. Be fine, two weeks. And we were like, well, maybe we should go to Strax and get some food. I have never seen Strax so packed. We walked in the Strax on Old Ridge Road. Did anybody do this? Was it just Bethany? No, it's not because there were a thousand people in Strax. Had to have been some of you, right? I remember walking down the Strax aisles and the end is near did not create sober-mindedness and clear-headedness. There was like the, the, the shelves were trashed. There was no water left. All the toilet paper was gone. Like what is happening? The aisles for the cash registers were super long. This is kind of a, an important reminder for us as we do live in this end of redemptive time. Christ is coming back here. And so what Peter's reminding us, that in our community, we ought to be self-controlled and sober-minded so that we know what to pray about. What an interesting encouragement for us. Live a self-disciplined and clear-headed life so that we know what to pray about. I think this highlights the importance of prayer for us in our community. All right, instead of our, prayer, our, our community lacking prayerful engagement with others, Peter's first priority is that believers remember their prayer life. And this is the first characteristics of biblical community. A people who are praying for one 
another. And that people know what we ought to be praying about for each other, right? Do I know what to pray for, for you, my brother, for you, my sister? So be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The next encouragement we get from Peter is that we love one another earnestly. Love one another earnestly, and here's the reason, since love covers a multitude of sin. What we find here is that love is the glue that holds biblical community together, and it comes from our common experience at the cross of Jesus, right? Because Christ loved me, despite of my sin, despite of my rejection of him, I can love others who are different from me and who might hurt me, who are different from me and who might hurt me. And this is the hard part of community, isn't it? This is the hard part of community. Community is great in our society until somebody hurts you. And and if you spend enough time with someone and you've created and set some expectations on them, you are bound to get hurt. This is like dating 101 for the young people in the room. The closer you get to somebody, right, the more you are opening yourself up to be hurt by them. And that is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But what we find in our society is that it's become really easy to come and to go in community when you've been hurt. It's really easy to come and go in community when you have been hurt, right? Uh, Some of this is good. Some of it is not great, right? Don't love your job. Feel undervalued. Just leave. Girlfriend speaking a little too much truth to you, end it, right? It's really easy to come and to go in our society when you are hurt in community. But if we want to make lasting community that not only affects change in ourself, but change in our society, we have to learn to stick it out. And what helps us stick it out is earnest love. Earnest love. And here's the problem that we all have, whether or not we realize it, is if we are in Christ, then you are in the church, and if you're in the church, then you're in community, and you are a part of this earnest love, and you're a part of sometimes being hurt. And Peter knew this. Peter knew this. In the stressful situation context of of persecution and, and exclusion in the first century, Peter wanted to encourage believers that their community with one another should look like a radical selfless love. And notice here that this is described as an ongoing and mutual action. We get these like one anothering statements here in 1 Peter 4. Keep loving one another earnestly. Love is not a one and done kind of thing. Sometimes we need to be reminded that that selfless love is, is, it's not our default, right? It is not our default, but it is expected in biblical community. And if you, have, um, if you have multiple children, you probably see this on a daily basis. Uh, in, you know, reminding them that they do actually love their sibling seems to be like a constant struggle. Uh, you know, you have, you have the brother who is playing um, Xbox, and it is the younger sibling's turn to play Xbox, but you can't pause an online game, and he doesn't want to get off until he gets done. And, like, in that moment, there's no earnest love between siblings, Right? There's no earnest love between siblings. But you as a parent are stepping in and you are reminding them, hey, you love each other, you love each other, 
you love each other because you share a common identity. You are part of the same family. And this is exactly what Peter is doing here. It's what's true of the family of God. And so we ought to love one another earnestly. Why? Why do we do this? What's the reason? It says because uh, sins, love covers a multitude of sins. And I want to step into this just for a moment. I think this encouragement from Peter, uh, it most likely comes from Proverbs 10.12. It's right here on the screen. Proverbs 10.12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. I think this encouragement from Peter, this wisdom from Proverbs, is such a balm to our culture today, right? In, in an era where, where hatred is, is more marketable than love, when someone is, is canceled for the moment that they no longer align with an ever-changing morality, the ancient words of Proverbs have wisdom for us, right? Something so obvious, something so difficult, that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers offenses. Each and every one of us in this local church has an opportunity to be either an agent of strife or an agent of unity. One is motivated by hatred at, at its core, and one is motivated by love. And so we have this decision to make in each interaction we have with one another, in each interaction we have in community, and am I going to be an agent of, of unity here, or am I going to be an agent of strife? Am I going to act in love here, or am I going to act out of, of hatred? This love covering a multitude of sins, or, or love covering all offenses, is this idea that because you are in Christ, I will give you the benefit of the doubt. Because you are in Christ, I will forgive you even if you didn't ask for it. Because you are in Christ, I will show anger, I will show grace rather than anger. And this is the example that we have in the person of Jesus Christ, right? A man who chose love which covered all offenses. This is what he went to the cross for. An innocent man who went to the cross, hung there dying, and one of his last words was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. What a great attitude we can take into our relationships. Father, forgive them. They don't know how that hurt me. Right? Father, forgive them. They didn't know what they were saying. How are we acting as an agent of unity? And one thing I do want to touch on here, maybe, maybe a little aside, here we are encouraged to love and, and forgive, right? But I will say that this is one side of the coin uh, of, of biblical love because endless grace without truth leads to abuse in relationships. Endless grace without truth leads to abuse in relationships. Sometimes love looks like forgiving without bringing the problem up. Other times, love looks like speaking truth. And we have wisdom and discernment. This is why Paul's, uh, Peter's first encouragement to us is, is prayer. How are you taking your problems to the Lord in prayer, your relational problems to the Lord in prayer, so that you might have wisdom and discernment to know what to do with them, right? Is this something that I bring up? Is this something that I forgive? Is this something that I speak to? Is this something that, hey, that person's in Christ, and I know they didn't mean it, I'm going to let it go. How are we prayerfully discerning? And here at Bethel, here at Bethel Hope Reportage, we often say that, that we, want, we want you, each and every individual out there, to step out of the crowd and into the family. 
to step out of the crowd and into the family. Crowds are not bad. Crowds are not bad things. But community is where life change happens. And we here at at Bethel HP, we're here at Bethel, are, are not here to build crowds that are just nice and kind to each other, that speak uh, platitudes to each other on Sunday morning, that talk about the weather and, and our clothes. We are here to build a community, right? Politeness and platitudes build crowds. Truth in love builds communities. And if somebody calls out your sin in a gracious way, that's community building. And they ought to expect the same from you as well. We're not here to build crowds. We're here to build communities. And I often think of stepping into this room on Sunday morning, stepping into community at a church, uh, sort of like those tumbling metal polishers. You know what I'm talking about? Those little vats that have the tiny itty-bitty stones in them, and a piece of metal has just been machined, and it gets chucked into this vat. And the vat shakes, and the vat turns, and the vat spins. And after a while, you pull the piece of metal out, and it is shiny and smooth, and it is rubbed clean. I think of Christian community in this way, right? At some times, we are the little itty-bitty stones, and we are speaking truth, grating off uh, a little piece of metal off of somebody, right? Sometimes, we get to be the piece of metal, and we get chucked into a vat where everybody tells us the ways that we are not following Christ well, right? But how are we all rubbing up against each other in loving community and pushing each other to the person of Jesus Christ? And I think that this can be not just an encouragement to each and every one of us as followers of Christ, an opportunity to allow our faith to persevere to the end, but it can be a witness, a witness to a culture when we love selflessly. We're encouraged to love one another earnestly because this love covers a multitude of sins. And the last little aspect here I want to look at in 1 Peter 4 is to show hospitality to one another. Show hospitality to one another. You want to know what biblical community looks like? It looks like showing hospitality to each other. If you, look at, uh, if you look at the verse, Peter gives a little bit of a caveat here. He says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Without grumbling. And this cracks me up because being hospitable while grumbling seems to be a universal and eternal human characteristic. Right? If first century Christians needed reminded that, hey, you need to be hospitable, but you need to not complain about it, man, we still need to be encouraged to be hospitable without complaining about it. This is the encouragement that we get from Peter. And these are coming to believers. Remember, these are, this, this encouragement is coming to believers who might have been excluded from their families because of their belief. Christians would provide a place for each other to stay. They would provide food. They would provide clothing. And they would do it without grumbling, right? How many times have you come home from work and your wife is like, hey, remember we have so-and-so over for dinner tonight? And you're like, oh, <laughs> that's going to really cut into my couch Netflix time, right? I think this, this lack of grumbling and this encouragement to hospitality Really what it's, it's getting to at the end of the day is showing an open-heartedness. An open-heartedness to people who are different than you. This is what we are encouraged toward. Open-heartedness and hospitality. And again here, there's, there's a give and take. It says show hospitality to 
one another. The encouragement we have here is that Christians should use their time and their resources to help and to support and to love each other. And I want to remind us here, maybe, maybe we haven't thought about this, but have you ever considered that your house and your calendar and your attitude are three of the greatest resources that you have in supporting somebody else? Your house and your calendar and your attitude are three of the greatest resources that you have in supporting someone else. An empty home is not creating biblical community, right? An empty, an empty dining room table is not creating biblical community. A calendar filled with only personal events is not creating biblical community. How are you using your home and your calendar and your attitude to create community, right? If I was uh, to look at, at your calendar, if you were to look at my calendar and my wallet, would, would they shout hospitality? That is what we are pushing for here. That is what Peter's encouragement is to us here. And I think one question that often comes up with this, one question that comes to mind is, is who is responsible for being hospitable, right? Who is responsible at the nitty-gritty for creating community. And I know that many in this room are thinking, man, I would love it if somebody would invite me over to dinner. I would love it if somebody were to reach out to me uh, and, and invite me out to coffee. I want to remind us of this one anothering that is supposed to happen when it comes to love and hospitality. And what I want to encourage you is that if this is an area where you feel like you are struggling, uh, creating community or, 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 or waiting for somebody to create community, I want to encourage you to take a step of faith, to be an agent of unity, and maybe be the first to engage in hospitality. And be reminded that it might not work the first or the third or the seventh try, but our encouragement here is to work towards hospitality to one another a give and a take. And so what we have seen here over the, these two passages, right, we have seen the foundation that God lays for creating community, that we have all been chosen, if we're in Christ, all chosen by God the Father. It's made by God. It's centered on the person of Jesus Christ. We have seen what community looks like. It looks like self-sacrifice and service. And, and the last thing I want to touch on really briefly here is why community is important. And we find that community's importance Back in 1 Peter 2.9, and it's up here on the screen, 1 Peter 2.9 tells us why community is so important. Again, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a community made by God, founded on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've been brought from death to life, from darkness to light, and we see it here, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of God. This is the purpose of a community. Biblical community is important because it allows us to declare the excellencies of God. And I've mentioned it a few times, but what an opportunity the church has to be a witness to a lonely and isolated culture, right? What an opportunity the church has to show that mistakes doesn't have to mean the end of your community. 
What an opportunity the church has to declare the greatness of God by being loving and hospitable. This is why community is so important. Because it's central to our own perseverance as followers of Jesus Christ and because it is such an incredible witness to a lost culture. And this is what I want to encourage us to. Here at Bethel Hope Reportage, I want to encourage us to commitment to community. And one very practical way that we, do, we have coming up here for this. Next week, we have uh, starting a ministry fair of all the different ways that you can step into community here at Bethel Hope Reportage. Whether that's a small group, whether that's a women of the words, uh, women of the words table, um, whether that's serving in, in some capacity that functions as good community, right? How are you stepping out of the crowd and into the, into the family? How are you stepping out of the crowd and into community? And one encouragement that I have for you here, uh, this is a bit of a, a, of a pastoral moment for me. I see a lot of full calendars. I see a lot of full calendars. And one of the encouragements that I want to give you is that we are not encouraging you to step into seven aspects of community, right? We are not encouraging you to fill up your whole calendar with some form of community at the church. What we want, what we want is for you to be in a community, at least a community. If you want to do more, if you feel like God has called you to do more, that's great. But don't hear from the pulpit that you need to be in all of these different things. We want you to be rubbing shoulders with somebody else in some capacity, whether that's a small group. That's great. Whether that's a women of the word table. That's awesome. That is community that we are pushing for, right? Because when we fill up our calendars with church community, we have less opportunity to engage a lost world, right? This is the encouragement that I want to leave you with this morning. In order to grow here as a disciple of Jesus, we must commit to community. Community that is sometimes hard, it's sometimes messy, it's sometimes a place where we are hurt, but we are reminded that we can love one another well because we have all been called to the same identity, right? We are all a broken people who have found healing at the cross of Jesus Christ. So let's strive to remember that our community is made by God, it's centered on the person of Jesus Christ, that we should love one another self-sacrificially, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of a God who saved us, a God who brought us out of, his, out of darkness into his marvelous light.